Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 101, the first episode of season two. And we're going to talk about 10 pieces of good news for van life. We're also going to discuss a problem with combo solar charger and DC to DC chargers, a tale from the road involving an island and a ghost, and a product review of a really nice, simple to install and inexpensive ladder. Hello everyone, welcome back. It is finally season two, and you're going to notice a lot of new music this episode. This music is all by Simon Wagg. He basically wrote me kind of a suite of music that I'm going to play in its entirety at the end of this episode, because I know some of you really like Simon's music. So stay tuned at the end after the credits and you can hear the entire song he made. Let's talk about 10 pieces of good news for van life. A lot of times I feel like I'm just, you know debunking things and talking about how things aren't really as good as they seem but not this time Uh, -uh. 10 things that are actually good news and number one and one that everyone's paying a lot of attention to gas prices are going down yes it's true it's happening slowly but gas prices are dropping in fact oil prices had a big drop last week and that is a clear sign that we should see gas prices falling soon Hopefully, everything can change. But all the indicators are saying that gas prices should be going down now that the summer demand is over and some of the oil refineries that were taken offline during storms last year are coming back online. We should be getting some relief, at least I hope. By the way, the cheapest gas for sale in the U.S., is in the southeast, Arkansas, Louisiana, South Carolina, in that area. That's where you're going to find the cheapest gas. And the most expensive, you will not be surprised to hear, is usually the Bay Area of California, which sees prices over $5 a gallon these days. Whew. But, again, that should be coming down soon. Number two, the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous in-person event that was made famous by the movie Nomadland, and of course, due to its own success, is a go for 2022. That means they are planning on having the event in person. Now, obviously, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and things can change, but as of right now, they are planning on having it in person. They haven't announced dates yet or location or anything like that. But if it happens and I can get there, I'm planning on going to the RTR this year, even though it is a crazy long drive from Chicago. That is a good sign. It's a sign that things are coming back to normal. And RTR is always going to be a great place to meet other van lifers and learn new skills. It is the biggest of these events, and it is the one most focused to helping people learn how to live in vans. Number three. For those of you that travel around and do jobs here and there, you're kind of a nomadic worker, boy, this is a great time for you. There are jobs everywhere, and the wages are higher this year. This crazy job shortage we're going through, which has a number of complex factors in it, is a boon for people in van life because you can find temp jobs nearly anywhere you go and they pay more than ever before. One place to find these is at workcamper.com. That's W-O-R-K Amper, just one K, workamper.com. Uh, and that's a subscription service, but it is the go-to place for finding these jobs. So if you want to do beet harvest or work at Amazon or sell Christmas trees or any of that kind of 
thing, workcamper.com can help you. But you know what? Don't be afraid to look on Facebook and Craigslist and places like that. For example, I have a friend who has a business doing Christmas lights for cities and large businesses, and he was paying very generously recently for folks in the northern Chicago area. So there are lots of these opportunities out there And that is great. This is not going to be a lean Christmas for folks willing to work. Number four, lithium iron phosphate batteries continue to fall in price. Prices have dropped about 97 to 98% in 10 years. At this point, and I've said this before, lithium is the way to go in your van build unless you're going to be operating mostly in freezing conditions. The value is in lithium. Don't forget with lithium, you get faster recharges, deeper discharges, and they weigh a lot less. And there's absolutely no chance that anything's going to leak out or anything like that. The only problem with lithium batteries is that you can't charge them if the battery is below freezing. But there's ways to account for that. So seriously, if you have been thinking about batteries really Just skip everything else and just get lithium and you'll find deals everywhere. However, remember that the cheaper batteries have less sophisticated battery management systems and you might want to spend a little bit more to get a fancy one with Bluetooth or something. Number five, the infrastructure bill passed. Now, I understand this is a political thing and I'm not interested in talking about the politics of it, but this bill will impact van life in many positive ways. After all, the bill is about building infrastructure, and that's the thing we depend on to get where we're going, to connect to the internet, and to have services when we get where we're going. There should be a whole lot of new things coming over the next few years, and back to point number three, it will also create jobs, and many of them may be temporary jobs or work camper jobs or something that van life people can do. Now, it's early days for this bill, but it definitely looks like it's going to help us out, and that's great. Number six, a very big thing. There are more used vans on the market now, and prices are starting to come down. Now, from what I've seen, the forecast is that 2022 is still going to be a tough year for vehicles. The prices are still going to be high. But just looking at real world, what I'm seeing... I'm seeing a lot more partially and fully built out vans for sale. And while the prices are still kind of high, they are getting lower. And for unbuilt vans, well, I just looked at commercialtrucktrader.com and looked for vans under $20,000, and I found 700 vans under $20,000, and and all kinds of vans. I mean, obviously, you weren't going to find a brand new Sprinter or Promaster in there, but there were lots of Econolines and NV200s and Transit Connects and some Chevy Express cutaways. It was was a really nice cutaway in there for about $9,000 that was going to make somebody a nice home. So this is good news. If you've been waiting to buy a van because the prices were crazy, now's probably a good time to start looking again because things are getting better. Number seven, we have a place to get rid of and pick up free stuff. And, well, that's because I created it. I created a Facebook group called Van Life Free Store, 
and I will give you a link in the show notes so you can find it. But basically, it works like this. If you have something you no longer need, it's taken up space, list it on the Facebook page, and then people can say, hey, I'd like that, and you guys can arrange shipping, and that's it. There's no money, nothing for sale. It's just, hey, I've got something I'd like to pay forward with. Just pay me for shipping. Currently, right now, I have a 1,000-watt inverter on there for free. It's the old one for my ambulance, and it's only modified sine wave, but it's actually a very nice inverter. And I also have a captain's chair in there. Now that's an ambulance captain's chair. It's a big vinyl chair with a, an integrated seat belt. And if somebody was looking to add a third seat to their vans, that might be a good thing. Although arranging how we're going to pick that up is going to be a little tricky. It's in Chicago. Also, somebody else has listed a big set of sheet vinyl for doing floors. But anyway... It's kind of sort of like Craigslist, except it's on Facebook. I'm managing it. I'm going to not let there be any scams on there. And it's just a nice way for people to get rid of stuff they don't need and help pay it forward and help out folks who are just starting out. So again, that's uh, on Facebook. It is Van Life Free Store, and there'll be a link in the show notes. Number eight, solar panels continue to come down in price. For example, I was poking around on Amazon today, and you can get rich solar polycrystalline 100-watt rigid panels for 88 bucks. Now, I've worked with rich solar in the past. I find their customer service to be excellent, and their solar panels are just as good quality as everybody else's. The ones I got from them were actually made in Vietnam. And 88 bucks. I mean, you can get 200 watts of solar for well under $200. And heck, if you threw in a PWM controller, you could have 200 watts of reliable solar with a controller for under 200 bucks. I mean, it's amazing. I'll have a link in the show notes to that particular one that I found, but there's many out there. And some of them are square rather than rectangular, and that could help with some builds. So good news for folks interested in solar. Prices keep falling. Number nine. 5G phones are now the norm. 60% of cell phones now are 5G. Why does that matter? Well, for those of you who are content creators who need to upload things like videos, and I do have some experience with doing this from a van, and the pain you might feel, well, the more people using 5G phones means the more pressure there is on the networks to build out 5G capacity, which means we're going to get higher speeds from cell phones out there on the road. And that is very, very good news for anybody who's working from the road or producing content or anything like that. We should expect the internet situation in vans to only get better from now going forward. And that's, and that's really, 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 really a good thing. I'm very excited for that. <laughs> and number 10, perhaps the biggest good news, and it's partially because of COVID, Remote work is becoming normalized, meaning that it's becoming normal not to go in the office. Now, a lot of places are doing a hybrid model where, where you'll go in one day a week or something like that. But for many industries and almost all industries where people are just tapping at a computer all day, remote work is expected. For example, some of you know that I have a cruise-only travel agency. All the call centers for the cruise lines I work with closed during COVID. They sent everyone home, routed the calls to those people's homes, and then they said, this is permanent. <laughs> they got rid of their call centers. Everyone does it from home now. Theoretically, you could be a cruise line call center rep from a van. 
And there's more and more of that. I have a friend who's a, a CSS programmer, and he's looking for a new job, and he's not even looking at jobs that make him go to the office, and he's having multiple offers for his skills. So this is a great time to be doing van life, and it's a great time to try to make ends meet while being out there on the road, because there are a lot of work opportunities. Yes, I know inflation's high, gas prices are high, there are some difficulties, but overall, I am feeling very positive about van life going forward. I think it's going to be more feasible than ever before, and I hope I see you out there somewhere down the road. Tech Talk. All right, I promise this is the last time I'm going to talk about this issue, but it keeps changing, and I, I don't want to mislead you guys. I bought a combo solar charger DC to DC controller, and I've talked about it a lot. And basically the idea is you get this one device, and it will handle charging from your alternator and charging from solar. It'll pick whichever's best, charge your batteries, using a profile that's appropriate for your battery and you plug it you forget about it basically you install this thing you never have to worry about it again i installed one of these and it did work but it had this big problem which was that it wouldn't pass through power from the solar to any appliances where you were using if the battery was full meaning if the battery's full and it's noon and you're getting solar power and you turn something on you would rather that something that you turned on take power from the solar rather than from the battery. And this one that I bought had a problem that it would only start charging the battery after the battery was just about dead, which was kind of pointless. <laughs> that means all day long, all you could do is drain the battery, and then by the end of the day where the battery's getting low, then it would turn on the solar panel, and then the sun would go down. So you can see the problem there. So the way I fixed it is I bought a separate solar controller. I bought a, a Renogy Rover, which is a pretty standard MPPT solar controller. And now I have that doing solar, and then I keep, I'm keeping this thing for DC to DC. However, for those of you who are interested in this solution, which does save a lot of space and is a lot less complicated... There is a product by RedArk that I have somebody who is reporting does work properly. I'll have a link in the show notes, of course, but if you're searching for it, it's called the RedArk Electronics Dual Input 25-Amp In-Vehicle DC Battery Charger. It's very similar to the thing that I am not so happy with right now, but uh, this thing reportedly does charge properly. The bad thing is that it costs $389, which is pretty close to the price of a battery-to-battery, -battery, a charger, plus a standalone solar controller. So this would be for somebody who wants a one-stop shop, one device that will do all of this. Like if you're going to put it under a chair because you're running out of space, this might be a good way to do that. I've also heard that Renogy has a product that might work too, but I know for a fact that this one works, so that's why I'm telling you about it. So it's a RedArk Electronics Dual Input 25-Amp In-Vehicle DC Battery Charger I will have a link in the show notes. Tales from the road. So I just came back from Boston, Massachusetts, which is not far from where I grew up, in Salem, Massachusetts. Having grown up there, I, I find Boston to be fascinating. Plus, it's got 400 years of history, not counting all the Native Americans who were slaughtered by disease in the 1590s, etc. But there's 400 years of European history colonial history 
in Boston, and that provides lots and lots of things to look at. And part of that history is centered around the Boston Harbor Islands. Boston Harbor is actually pretty big, and there are a number of islands out there, and lots of odd things out there. For example, the Edgar Allan Poe story, A Cask of Amontillado, was supposedly based on a story that actually happened on one of those islands where a man was bricked up behind a wall. Edgar Allan Poe himself served on the islands when he was in the military. But we would go out and check out these forts, and the biggest of these is on George's Island. There's a fort on there called Fort Warren, which was built in the 1840s and 50s. And it is a big, classic, star-shaped stone fortress. I mean, it's huge. It has all these little places you can crawl around, and it's kind of cool. And there's a boat that goes out there, and we would go out there as kids and just crawl around all day long. It was one of the highlights of the year. And one time, my grandmother was looking for something to do, so she offered to take me out there. And I, I was like, yes, let's go! And we got out there, and, you know, I was a 10-year-old kid, and she was a retired woman, and so I was moving perhaps a little bit faster than she was. And at some point, she was just like, okay, I'm going to sit here. <laughs> you go have fun. I roamed around everywhere. I was up on the ramparts and down in the tunnels. And then I remembered that there was supposed to be a ghost on George's Island. She's known as the Lady in Black, and she is supposed to be the ghost of a woman by the name of Mrs. Andrew Lanier, who is the wife of a Confederate soldier who was imprisoned on the island, because they did used to use the islands as a POW camp back in the Civil War. Now, there's supposedly this legend of this big plot where she had come to the island to rescue her husband, and then got into a scuffle with the guards, and then they killed her husband. And after her husband was killed, she was captured, and then she was supposed to be hanged. Now, to get onto the island to rescue her husband, she had to dress up as a man, so she asked for the dignity of being dressed in women's clothing for her death. But this being a military base, there wasn't any women's clothing, so they found some black drapes and made these black robes for her. And, well, okay, there's the lady in black. So she went to the gallows defiantly and was hanged and, you know, dead and all that kind of stuff. Theoretically, the end of the story. But, over the years... Sentries kept seeing this dark figure in this one part of the fort. Now, I knew the story, but I didn't know what part of the fort. I mean, it's a big fort, and I am a little bit spatially challenged. Uh, <laughs> don't ever ask me for directions, because I'm just going to tell you to use a GPS. But um, when I was wandering around the fort, I came across this one room, it was a big room, completely dark, there were no windows in here except these slits like you would point a gun out of, and it just was the creepiest place. I mean, I went in the door and I found I was really not willing to leave the light of the doorway. I didn't want to explore as much as I probably should have. And of course, I didn't bring a flashlight, and this was the day before everyone had a flashlight in their cell phone. So I decided, eh, I'll go see something else. But curiosity did get the better of me, and I went back and looked at the map and tried to figure out where people were seeing the Lady in Black, and you guessed it, it was in that very room. That is where the Lady in Black was observed, and that is where I felt the creepiest and didn't want to go in. What does this mean? 
Well, it means it's a very dark room, and we are kind of afraid of dark rooms. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not much of a believer in ghosts. I find other explanations to be much more interesting. And the fact that it is this lady in black, like, you know, black, like the most common thing we see when it's dark, <laughs> really doesn't make me think too much of, of the story. So, yeah. So, did I see the lady in black? No. Did I sense her presence because I felt creepy? Eh, probably not. Probably I just didn't want to go into a dark room alone, and I don't think there's anything that unusual about that. However, should you be the type of person who would like to explore this for yourself, it is very easy to find a boat down by the New England Aquarium that will take you over there, and you can visit Fort Warren and visit the very spot where the Lady in Black may yet be lurking. But I doubt it. Product review. So I wasn't going to get a ladder for my van, my ambulance, which is a 2011 Sprinter 144 high top. I just thought, eh, I don't, why do I want that hanging on the back there? And it's a way for other, you know, if I'm parked somewhere, people could climb up there. And I just thought it was a hassle. And then I put solar on the roof. And where I park the van is next to a brick wall. So I can actually climb up on the brick wall and climb up on the roof. So I didn't really need the ladder to do that. But solar panels need to be cleaned, and getting up on the roof to clean them is quite a challenge. This roof is pretty high up in the air. So I thought, oh, I'll just get a telescoping ladder that I can use anywhere, which is not a bad way to go. But they were expensive, and I couldn't find one that I really liked, and I didn't want to get a cheap one because getting a cheap ladder just doesn't seem like a really good idea. But I did find a ladder that wasn't terribly expensive that I really, really like. What I bought was a Vantech L004B angled rear access ladder. I got it from a company called carid.com. That's C-A-R-I-D.com. And this ladder came in pieces. I put it together without too much difficulty and then bolted it to the back door of the van. You basically drill holes to install these brackets. So you have to have access to both sides of the door and then it all goes on with Allen wrenches. It took me maybe a couple of hours. It wasn't that big of a deal, but it is solid. I mean, this ladder, it's just completely solid. I can go up and down it with no problem. And I don't know why I would want an $800 ladder. This ladder was $207, which if you price out ladders for vans, especially high tops, that's not a bad price. And they do make them for all different kinds of vans. So I recommend this thing very highly. It is a really nice van. A couple of notes if you want to put a ladder on your back door. If you have the kind of van which has doors that fold flat against the sides, remember that you put a ladder on there because the ladder will hit the side of the van. And that's the situation I'm in. I'm fine with that. It doesn't really bother me. But also remember that your ladder may impact your rear view camera and it could possibly impact any lights you have in the back of the van too. So plan it out carefully. But as far as drilling the holes to put the screws in, you can basically use the parts as a template. So that wasn't all that scary. It would be easier to do with two people. I do everything alone. I have tricks to accommodate for that. And uh, yeah, the thing's great. I'll have a link in the show notes and you can actually see a picture of it. They make them for transits and Promasters and Sprinters. And 
For $200, I don't know why you'd spend more for a ladder. It's a perfectly strong, perfectly stable, nice-looking ladder. A place to visit. Well, since I just got back from Boston and I just mentioned the New England Aquarium, I'm going to throw that out to you as a place to visit. Now, if you're going to go to Boston, parking is very very difficult. Street parking is often only for an hour or two, and most of the garage parking has a six foot or six six limit. It's a big deal. In fact, I was going to drive to Boston, but I ended up flying because of parking. I needed to stay for five days, and the cheapest parking I could find was $36 a day. And when I added everything else, I mean, my airfare was less than $36 a day. So, yeah. But anyway, there's a way around that, and that is to go to the Riverside Green Line. It's just outside of Newton. They have 925 parking spaces that are open. So you can park there, and then just take the Green Line into Boston, and you can get off... You'll have to look at the map of the T, but it's not all that big. It is not. Boston's a very walkable city. It kind of doesn't matter where you get off. But you can get off near the aquarium or switch to, I believe, it's the blue line that actually goes to the aquarium. Anyway, that's how you handle parking. Let's talk about the aquarium. So the Boston Aquarium was opened, I believe, in the late 60s, and it's someplace I went a lot as a kid. It is a modern-style aquarium, but it is certainly older, and it shows it, uh, than, say, the big aquariums in Baltimore or New Orleans or places like that. I think, believe Georgia has a big one now, too. But it's still pretty cool. They have done a lot to keep this up and change it. The main feature of the aquarium is a massive coral reef tank in the middle. It was actually the first thing they built, and it's multiple stories high, and the entire aquarium has a ramp that goes around this coral reef. It's kind of like the Guggenheim in New York, if you've ever been there, and you kind of walk around the coral reef, and you see the different fish that live at different levels, like at the top you'll find the sea turtles, and at the bottom you might find the sharks if they happen to have any, and the schools of fish are in the middle, and all that kind of stuff. It's really quite nice, and there's always someone there to answer questions. And then there are levels as you go down. So you go down the ramp and then go around that level and you'll see galleries dedicated to seahorses or leafy sea dragons or Rio Texas or electric eels or poison arrow frogs or whatever they're trying to feature at that time. They also have an amazing exhibit of penguins in what is essentially the lobby. The lobby is a concrete catwalk that goes over a basically a big pool, and in that pool are rocks, and on the rocks are lots and lots of penguins, and you can interact with them with lasers. Yes, they have these machines, well, they're lasers, they're not really machines, that shine a laser fish in the water, and the penguins will chase it around, so you can actually play laser tag with the penguins, and it, it's not mean. <laughs> the penguins love this, actually, and it's good exercise for them. They're all well-fed. They get hand-fed individually, so that's not an issue, but since they're not actively hunting for their food, you're providing that activity for them. So, you know, this, this isn't cheap. There's a lot of tourists there. It's about $31 to get in. They have sea lions that you can see and a giant gift shop, and it's right down in the middle of all the harbor activities. All the ships leave from there, the duck boats leave from there, there's illegal seafood across the street, 
you could basically have your lovely waterfront day using this as the center. It takes about four hours to see most everything. You could easily spend more there if there's a cafe. So if you're in the Boston area and you'd like to see a very well-run aquarium, even though it's 50 years old, take a look at the New England Aquarium. I am quite nostalgic about the place, so I might not be the most impartial judge, but I really think almost anybody with any interest in the ocean or ecology or anything like that will have fun looking at all the various exhibits. Resource recommendation. So I've been meaning to talk about this for a long time. There is an eye overlander problem, folks. Eye overlander, all stays, campendium, freecampsites.net. There are probably 20 or so different websites now where you can find places to sleep overnight. And they they all have pluses and minuses, and they all have different things, which I find interesting. And I am not saying that these apps are useless, but I do want to point out a problem, and I don't really know how to solve it. Here's the problem. When I was in South Dakota, uh, I found a rest area that seemed like a good place to spend the night. I spent the night there, and I put it in iOverlander. I mentioned that there were no signs prohibiting parking overnight, that there was good cell phone signal, that there were bathrooms that were open 24 hours a day, and it was fairly quiet because it happened to be far enough from the highway. So, you know, a pretty decent place to stop if you're traveling through South Dakota. And, you know, I went about my life and didn't think much of it. And then a couple years later, I went and looked at that review and saw that a lot of people had stayed there based on it being an eye overlander. And then I noticed that a lot of people were very angry because now there are signs there that saying no parking overnight. And this is happening more and more with iOverlander and other apps and websites. We're encouraged to find places to park and put them in iOverlander, but then they become popular and then whoever's in charge of that area can get upset and then people aren't welcome there anymore. And this is the dilemma. If you find a great place to park, should you put it in these apps? And I don't know the answer. I know of a great place to park right near Garden of the Gods in southern Illinois, which is easily the most beautiful place in Illinois. A great place to go, by the way. This is a great place to park. You can spend the night. There are bathrooms nearby. You're not going to have any problems. But it's not in iOverlander, and I don't want to put it there because I feel like as soon as I do that, it'll get ruined. Traditionally, we solve problems of supply and demand, which is what this is, by raising prices. But <laughs> this is free. There's, there's, no, there's no economy to do that in. And obviously, we wouldn't want to do that anyway. So, folks, I don't have an answer. And I don't have any advice. If you find a great camping spot, you kind of have to think twice about putting it in these popular apps because it could get overrun and then no one can use it. And yet it feels dishonest to use iOverlander and not contribute to it. So, again, I don't have an answer, but I, I do want to point out this problem and make you aware of it. And maybe if you find a quiet neighborhood near a major city that you can park in, maybe you don't want to put that in iOverlander. But if you find a good BLM spot that's a little bit further out of the way that people may not know about, that's probably a great thing to put in iOverlander. But for the things in the middle, boy... I just don't know, and, and I'm troubled by it because I feel like if 
van life keeps getting more popular, we're going to be finding fewer and fewer and fewer places where we're welcome. And that's a problem. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Season 2, Episode 101. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. You can get a hold of me at jeff at built2go, that's two T's, not three, not one, dot com. Or you can find me on Instagram as College of Curiosity, or on one of our Facebook groups, such as Built2Go, a Facebook group. We also have a YouTube channel called, you guessed it, Built2Go, a YouTube channel. And until next time, remember this provocative quote from Albert Camus. Always go too far, because that's where you'll find the truth.